Welcome to the BJA Education Podcast. Welcome to the September edition of the BJA Education Podcast. I'm Benj Marriage. And I'm Cliff Shelton. This month, we're bringing you two podcasts, and this one regards the use of non-invasive ventilation in the perioperative period. Non-invasive ventilation was first introduced to medical practice as a treatment for the acute presentation of type 2 respiratory failure, but has since become more commonly applied in the perioperative period. This month, Ben spoke with Dr Alistair Glossop about his article, Non-Invasive Ventilation in the Perioperative Period, published in the September edition of BJA Education. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Alistair Glossop, who's a consultant in intensive care and anaesthesia at Sheffield Teaching Hospitals. He was also the NICE Scholar in 2010-11 for the evaluation of the health economic benefits of non-invasive ventilation. This puts him in an expert position to discuss his article, Non-Invasive Ventilation in the Perioperative Period, which will be published in the September 2016 edition of BJA Education. So Dr. Glossop, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, I think it's fair to say that as mortality related to anaesthesia alone has come down to very safe levels, there's now a plethora of documents suggesting we should be shifting our focus to avoiding perioperative complications. So with that in mind, um, perhaps we can start with a little bit of background behind why you wrote this article to help us start thinking of potentially how and why NIV could be used in the perioperative period. Yes, I shall, um, and thank you for the uh, for the question. I think I think you're very right. I think um, the actual safety and mortality from um, elective surgery these days is incredibly low. So it is a very safe thing to undergo. However, what we do also know, and there's been several large population studies published in the last sort of five years or so. What we know from these, what they tell us, is that despite the fact that mortality is reducing, we are offering services and offering operations to a an older and a more COVID population of patients and therefore the complications that we're seeing are still fairly prevalent and fairly common and respiratory complications in particular are very common following major surgical procedures uh, and may even have a, a prevalence still of sort of four to five percent for all comers undergoing elective and emergency surgical procedures in the UK and across Europe. So Whilst overall mortality is lower, one in 20 patients undergoing a, a elective or an all-comer type procedure may expect to develop post-operative complications, a, a pulmonary nature or post-operative respiratory failure as a result of having an anaesthetic and an operation. So there's still a fairly high chance of these things happening. Okay, um, that, that's great. And you've kind of uh, um, alluded to that in, in your answer. I think one thing to clear up is the potential confusion within the literature regarding the nomenclature of categorizing post-operative respiratory changes. And you define three categories of post-op respiratory changes, which are post-op respiratory dysfunction, post-op pulmonary complications, and post-op respiratory failure. Um, Could you define these terms for us and maybe illustrate their clinical relevance, please? Yes, certainly. I mean, you're right, it is quite a confusing kind of set of definitions and quite confusing nomenclature that does get used interchangeably. For me personally, the important uh, thing to, to think about and to remember is that they all actually develop from pretty much the same pathological or, or pathophysiological processes. So it's the same mechanism that's at play for very mild complications that's still at play for the very severe end of the spectrum of complications, but it's just amplified and accentuated and, if you like, occurring with greater veracity within the patients. 
Um, so it's almost like a bit of a one-way street or, or a, a process that gets propagated and developed that leads from the kind of very simple problems or the straightforward problems right through to the very severe problems. There are three different categories that are arbitrarily defined, though. Post-operative pulmonary dysfunction, if you like, is, a, is the very mildest end of the spectrum and the mildest category of problems. And it's, you can almost think about these, really, as kind of expected changes or almost kind of a, a normal response to the the toxic environment that we create by giving somebody an anaesthetic and putting them through an operation. And these are the kind of mild changes that don't really have any clinical significance that we would probably expect to see in anyone that had an anaesthetic for a couple of hours or longer. However, if it's allowed to develop and become more severe or, or more of the kind of respiratory system is affected, this can progress on into becoming post-operative respiratory complications. And this is a kind of evident clinical syndrome that has an impact or clinical significance on the patient so they may develop a higher respiratory rate or, or signs consistent with a chest infection. We then go right through to the very far end of the spectrum and things may progress on further from there right the way through to post-operative respiratory failure. And this is where a degree of prolonged ventilation is required or a further period of ventilatory support is required after the period of the operation is finished. And this is really the most severe end of the spectrum but still just a progression on of those same processes at the beginning, right at the very beginning uh, with patients who just had post-operative pulmonary dysfunction. So could you, uh, could you tell us what exactly are the benefits of NIV in the perioperative period? Certainly. I mean, the way I like to think about it is that this whole process begins in the same way. You know, having an anaesthetic and an operation, we really are setting patients up to fail and we're setting them up to develop respiratory problems. And a whole number of different changes will occur, such as loss of lung units, reduction in the FRC, atelectasis, collapse, consolidation, an accumulation of alveolar fluid. If we add into it all the things that we do with the anaesthetic, like the sedation effects, the opiate effects, and the blood to respiratory drive, we have a whole host of, of different kind of micropathologies, if you like, that are working in concert and working together to create respiratory failure in our patients. In NIV, and I think one of the reasons I see NIV as such an attractive um, intervention in this patient group is that we have really two or three different forms of therapy that we can offer patients and we can use in them that specifically counteract, attenuate, and potentially even treat and reverse these processes. So we induce all these changes and we induce all these problems, but we have a, almost a ready-made solution that can be used at several different stages to reverse the problems with oxygenation, to treat it, to try and reverse the atelectasis that we're seeing to treat the edema that's accumulating and to also help with the ventilatory problems that may be occurring as a result of the operation. So in many ways, it's a very, very good fit for all of these problems that we are introducing ourselves by giving the patient an anaesthetic and an operation. And it can be used at a variety of different stages, which is a very attractive feature. So it may be used early on as a prophylactic measure to prevent the patient progressing on from mild dysfunction through to sort of complications and failure. But it can also be used as a rescue and a treatment and a, a treatment sort of therapy in patients in whom a further period of invasive ventilation may be very harmful or associated with a high risk of mortality. The, the other sort of obvious benefit um, is your avoiding complications of mechanical ventilation. But are there any other benefits that NIV might have over sort of traditional invasive ventilation? Well, I mean, in the, I mean as, as you rightly say, I mean, all of the complications that we would expect to see from invasive ventilation, which we all know well, we know are very severe and associated with significant morbidity and mortality, such as VAP, ventilator-induced lung injury, the need for sedation, 
all the other problems that come with invasively ventilated are immediately removed. That kind of source of infection of a foreign body into the respiratory tree is also removed because we use a tight-fitting mask. NIV can also be provided in a, a wider sort of range of areas, clinical areas, than just an intensive care unit. It can be provided in the high dependency units and sometimes in the theatre recovery. So the scope for its use is greater than that for invasive ventilation. Uh, and hopefully that scope is something that we will see progressing and growing in years to come. The article then goes on to discuss some of the practical considerations of actually implementing NIV in the perioperative period. But what you did stress was that the use of NIV should be part of an integrated perioperative strategy. And I'd like to come on to that a little bit later. Um, but first, to our listeners who are considering integrating this into their practice, um, which patients tend to benefit from NIV the most in the perioperative period? Well, I think traditionally... NIV has been used in patients who are, I think, thought and classed as high risk or being at high risk of developing post-operative pulmonary complications. And this always traditionally has been patients undergoing open abdominal or thoracic procedures. So any form of intra-abdominal surgery in which there's a large abdominal cut made and also traditionally thoracic and, and cardiac surgical procedures as well. And if you go to the literature base, the, the vast majority of studies that look at using NIV and evaluate its effects tend to centre around these two specific surgical groups and these two particular areas of surgery. And I think that they are obviously groups that are associated with high risk of post-operative complications and therefore sensible groups to target. I would also say that in addition to that, um, there's probably a very large group of patients who would benefit from NIV who fall outside of these traditional thoracic or abdominal procedures but have pre-existing lung disease and lung conditions such as very severe COPD or suppurative lung diseases, cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis or anything really or, or severe heart disease that would predispose them to the development of heart failure postoperatively who rather than the procedure have patient related factors that put them at heart, high risk of developing pulmonary complications. And I would also sort of encourage the use of NIV in this group uh, because there's obviously benefits to be gained there by preventing them from developing problems after even what can be considered fairly minor surgery. But yeah, I would say the three main groups really would be the major surgery of the chest and the abdomen, but also uh, patients in whom they've got pre-existing severe comorbid diseases that may, even with lower risk procedures, be at risk of developing pulmonary problems post-operatively. And you mentioned in the paper that it's difficult to tell which patients confer a mortality benefit, but is that overall mortality or a one-year or five-year mortality rate? I mean, mortality in elective surgical populations is, is actually very difficult to influence. And I think that as a single intervention, it's very, very difficult to just say doing one thing will actually improve mortality and improve outcomes. Now, there are a couple of cases or a couple of examples in the literature that's available of looking at specific populations who develop respiratory failure and patients, for example, who've undergone uh, lung resection surgery and had pneumonectomies and lobectomies who then develop respiratory failure. We know if they get re-intubated, have a, an astonishingly high mortality from that. So in very, very specific conditions and groups like that, we can safely say, and there's been studies out there that demonstrate this, that actually using NIV in that group rather than going straight to invasive ventilation will have a mortality benefit. 
I think that's fair enough when you're talking about a group they've got a kind of 40-50% baseline mortality when you reach that point. However, if we go to um, general populations, elective populations in whom we are performing elective procedures that have you know, most of the mortality that's in single figures, it's very difficult to tease out a specific benefit on mortality just through one intervention. Some of the work that I did with NICE was to uh, perform a meta-analysis that pulled data from a huge number of different specialties, and we were able to demonstrate a mortality benefit in surgical patients with NIV from doing that, but that was in a very heterogeneous group of patients and very, very large numbers. I think that in terms of influencing for a particular specialty or, or particular elective procedure, it's far, far harder to do. And I think that the endpoints such as preventing reintubation, reducing length of stay, reducing the rate of pneumonia and various other kind of non-mortality, but still very important endpoints are the kind of things that we should be focusing on and we should be looking at trying to prevent and treat because these are obviously very, very important things to influence. Um, are there any patients in whom NIV should not be used? Something of a disclaimer, I'm an NIV enthusiast. There are very, very few people I would not put NIV on. However, many of the contraindications and cautions to NIV use generally apply to the surgical population as well. In fact, all of the same contraindications would still apply. So you obviously wouldn't want to use it in a patient who wasn't actually breathing, who had a respiratory arrest, who had marked cardiovascular instability, who was deeply unconscious and couldn't protect their own airway. Now, one area that you could perhaps look at is or, or think of it is surgical groups in whom it's not actually been used and trialed and large sort of studies in for example neurosurgical patients and you raise the point yourself of the pneumocephalus and situations like that i think in a lot of ways the evidence isn't actually out there and the studies haven't been performed to look at its safe use in this patient groups and that would probably be an area that i'd be fairly cautious about using niv in now one of the reasons i think that it's not widely looked at in neurosurgical patients is that their rates of post-operative pulmonary complications are actually fairly low and also, the, in the more prolonged procedures, there's often concerns regarding airways, safety, swallowing, bulbar function. A lot of patients are kept ventilated for long periods of time afterwards and receive early tracheostomies. And they're not really an ideal group to be trialing NIV in. And I think a lot of the work is focused away from that kind of area. And certainly in those situations where surgical preference may be to avoid anything that might cause problems with air getting where it shouldn't, then the evidence isn't there to use NIV and I think it's something that's probably best kept away from or at least treated with extreme caution. And what's your view on upper GI surgical patients? Is there not a risk that NIV could blow the anastomosis in say um, an Ivor Lewis or a gastric bypass patient? Certainly I would disagree with that as a contraindication. Um, I think there's very, very good evidence out there. In fact, there's numerous studies in esophageal surgery, gastric surgery and bariatric surgery that demonstrate that not only is NIV in its various forms safe in these patient groups, but it's actually beneficial because a lot of these patients do have high risk of developing respiratory complications that can be effectively attenuated and treated by early use and targeted use of NIV. So I think that's one of the traditional contraindications that's probably something that we ought to be moving away from and thinking more of as within the group of patients that we should be treating with NIV when they actually need it. Okay, thanks. And in addition to that, I direct the listeners to Table 2 in your article, which lists some additional contraindications and complications of using NIV. So coming back to um, integrating this into a perioperative strategy, in your paper, there's a practical guide flow diagram explaining how to use NIV in the perioperative period. Could you just talk us through it briefly? 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, I'm glad you have brought it up and I'm glad you've highlighted the kind of, if you like, the perioperative approach to all of this. And I must also say at this point, I must give great credit to my co-author, Chris Bouchmuller, who uh, wrote the article with me, putting an awful lot of work and is actually largely responsible for the development of this flowchart. Really, to be done well and to be done at its best, it's something that has to be effectively one part of a jigsaw that begins before the operation and, you know, involves careful patient selection speaking to the patients preoperatively and telling them they'll be getting post-operative NIV and explain it to them, show them the masks, engage them at an early stage in this strategy to hopefully improve their compliance. It's something that also involves a lot of perioperative and intraoperative factors like how we ventilate the patients while they're actually anaesthetized. And then in the post-operative period, there are many other things that go along with NIV, such as the nutrition, mobilization, and the physio, that all need to work together and all need to sort of fit together to give the patient the best possible outcome. And NIV is obviously a very important piece in all this jigsaw, but it's one of many different things that we need to get right. And I think one of the messages we were trying to get across is that it obviously is something that we should be doing more of, but as part of a, a wider perioperative plan. There isn't a one-size-fits-all, easy-answer solution. Uh, and what you really need to be doing is, is looking at the patient you've got in front of you, considering the evidence for that particular area. And... I think one of the, the great difficulties and one of the great barriers with more widespread NIV use is that there's loads of literature out there, there's loads of evidence out there, there's loads of studies that demonstrate a very positive effect for NIV, but different patient groups all use different protocols, they use different interventions, they use them for different time periods, they use different pressures, and actually trying to formulate one, if you like, one actual solution to apply to everybody is, is nigh on impossible. It's something that, whilst one of the strengths of NIV is that it's universally applicable practically in, in high surgical populations, that I think that translation into how we practice is hampered by the fact that it's really not always entirely clear what we should be doing. What I would encourage is rather than try and fixate on one way of doing it, is to try and think about the patient in front of you, why they might be developing respiratory failure and what we've got to offer that can help to either prevent or treat that and base your treatment and plan your treatment carefully around those kind of thoughts and those directions. Um, do, do you think we'll be using more NIV in the perioperative period in the future? Um, I certainly hope so and I certainly believe that's the case. Um, to me it, it's such an obvious solution, it's such a clear good fit for a problem that we encounter and we see a lot of. I mean as I said right at the very beginning Large surgical population studies are telling us that 45% of patients that we see, so 1 in 20, are going to develop significant respiratory problems. It's a problem that's not going away and that's there that we need to be well equipped to deal with. And NIV is a very good solution. The, the prophylactic uses that it has, the treatment uses that it has, in a wide range of different specialties, is something that really can make a difference and improve this. And currently, we don't do it well. We don't do it as well as we could. And I think that opportunity to develop it do it better, perhaps do it in a greater number of areas to get it on in theatre recovery, in surgical wards rather than just in critical care units. All of these things is something that potentially in the future we could look to that could be of great benefit and benefit our patient populations. I mean, there's always going to be a resource implication. There's always going to be a, well, how do we fund this? How do we cost all of this? But it's about weighing up the balance between that initial expenditure to prevent problems and then the cost of not having those problems further down the line you know if we get patients out of hospital sooner we reduce their length of stay we reduce their rates of infections we reduce the number of patients that have long course of antibiotics then we're saving money by doing that 
money that can be used at the front end as a preventative intervention and a preventative strategy. So I think, you know, there's huge scope and there's huge potential for it to be used more and more. And I'm fairly convinced that as our knowledge and understanding of the whole process evolves, as new therapies develop and emerge like high-flow nasal oxygen, we'll have more and more to use and we'll have greater and greater scope to use it in surgical patients earlier, better and more effectively. And finally, do you have any take-home messages for our listeners? I think for me, um, post-operative NIV really is a very easy therapy. We already do it in critical care units. It's a very effective therapy for all forms of major surgery. And I think if you're thinking your patient may need it, then there's probably a very good chance that they will. If they're going to be in an intensive care unit or high dependency unit, it's very it's a very easy thing to do. And there's very little harm associated with it, but a huge number of potential benefits that can be gained. So think about it more for your patients and apply it more. Don't be scared to use it. The, the benefits are there to be reaped for everybody. That that was um, that was really great. A very enlightening podcast. Uh, Dr. Alistair Glossop, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Benj. Thanks for your time. Thanks to Ali and Benj for an interesting discussion about the many uses and benefits of NIV in the perioperative period. Remember to check out the full article in the September edition. And don't forget, this month there are two podcasts, so make sure you have a listen to the one on intravenous lidocaine for acute pain. Next month, we'll also be bringing you two podcasts for the price of one, as Ben speaks to Dr. Joe Cosgrove about his two articles regarding the pre-hospital organisation and hospital response of mass casualty and major incidents. Thank you for listening to the BJA Education Podcast.